Luke 2, 41 to 52. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, what, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Uh, in 1997, one of my favourite movies of all time was released. It's a movie titled Good Will Hunting. I don't know if anyone's seen that. Uh, it has my favourite actor of all time, Robin Williams, in it. This is absolutely one of my favourites. And if you don't know the story, basically what happens is there is a janitor who works at MIT. It's a big technology university overseas. And he's just going about his routine janitor duties. And it seems as though he's your ordinary, everyday janitor until you start to watch the story unfold a little bit more. This, this university plays host to some of the best mathematics professors on the planet. These guys have won medals. These guys are really top-notch. And so they're educating the next generation of mathematicians. And as a way of challenging them in between classes, they would leave these really complicated math problems out in the hallway. And this wasn't like your basic long division or algebra, okay? This is top-notch mathematical problems. And none of these students were able to solve it. Anyway, one of the professors just walks down the hallway one day and goes, you're kidding, someone's actually solved this problem. Who, who did it? So he gets to class the next day and he's like, all right, come on, tell me, who's, who's my little protege? Who's, who's the next math genius? Everyone's looking around. Oh, not me, no, no one here. So, all right, okay, you can, I know it was one of you, but you're choosing to keep silent, I suppose that's humble, but I'm going to put up another problem. So he puts up another problem, and this is a problem that it took himself years to solve. And he puts it up on the chalkboard in the hallway, and he leaves it for the students. Anyway, this math professor's walking down the hallway again, and he sees this janitor working on this math problem in the hallway. He's like, oi, get away from there, that's, that's someone's homework you're doing there, can you get off my chalkboard, and he chases him down the corridor, the janitor runs away. But again, he looks at the chalkboard, and this janitor had solved this math problem that took him years to do, and he's, he's doing it easy. It's like Johnny Be Good, you know, he could play the guitar like he was ringing a bell, like it was too easy. And he thinks, I, what is this kid? I don't, I don't have a category for what you're doing right now. This is intelligence like we've never seen before. And if you watch the movie... His intelligence just plays out. He makes a lot of people look really silly. He starts dating this girl who's a medical student and she's trying to learn all this complex chemistry and anatomy and he does the homework for her really quickly so they can run off and have fun. Like, he's just a genius. Anything he puts his hand to, he just dominates. And so there's a sense when we read these, this passage here in Luke chapter 2, we're actually meant to get 
a similar response when we look at Jesus. When we read what he does here in the temple, we're supposed to go, how are you doing this? I, I don't have a category for what you're doing right now. This is, this is not how a 12-year-old boy typically behaves himself. This, this is unusual. We're, we're supposed to look at this account the same way we'd look at you know, the Superman movie, Man of Steel, and see a young Clark Kent lifting a bus. It's like, that's not normal. This, there is something abnormal about this boy. And so as we come to the close of our Christmas series, where we've been looking at a few curious Christmas characters, some of which who don't always get a lot of attention. We started with John the Baptist in week one, then we went to Mary in week two, then last week we had the shepherds, and then this week we're coming in to see Jesus, our last character. But it's not Jesus as we typically think of him at Christmas time. Typically we think of Jesus as a baby in a manger. I'm going to leave that for Pete on Christmas Day. But the way Luke wants to wrap up his birth narrative in these first two chapters is to show you just a little little synopsis of Jesus as a boy. And it finishes in the very place we began in Luke chapter 1. It's in the temple. And if you look at the text we read uh, a moment ago, it begins by saying that at age 12, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, took him down to Jerusalem for the Passover. So this was a feast also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was one of three festivals that the Jews who were uh, not immediately close to Jerusalem would travel down uh, to. So there were three different festivals. This is one of them. And so Jerusalem was kind of the geographical nucleus of the religion. So it it was kind of like a mothership for them. The temple was there. So this is the, the home of their religion. And it says that they took him down there according to custom. Now, what is it implying there? They took him down according to custom. Well, for if you're a Jewish boy, when you reach the age of 13, that's a kind of coming of age time for a Jewish boy. Now, modern Jews would call that bar mitzvah. You may be familiar with that particular um, idea. Now, this is not quite bar mitzvah, but it's sort of almost an older tradition. And what would happen is, is when a boy turned 13, he was now ready to be a full member of the synagogue. He was taking on his Jewish manhood, if you like, he was about to be what they would call a son of the commandment. And so what they would do from about the age of 11 or 12 is they would start to get the boys ready for this. They would start to get them to practice the kinds of things that they would do leading into Jewish manhood. And so when it says they brought him down according to custom, he's 12, he's getting ready to turn 13. So that's why they're bringing him down. Now, this trip that they made down, it was uh, no light journey. Uh, It was not a journey you would... um, perform on your own. It was about 80 miles walking down to Jerusalem. And you have to remember that the terrain there was quite vulnerable. There'd be a lot of highway robbers that might try and uh, attack you along the way. So you would travel in large family groups with your relatives and even a few acquaintances. So if you're a robber, there was a couple of things that could put you off. Number one was the great numbers. But the other thing was probably the singing. As people approached Jerusalem, they would be singing in preparation Uh, to go to Jerusalem. In fact, if you open your Bible to the book of Psalms, if you read Psalms like Psalm 122, they're titled Songs of Ascent. Basically, as you would ascend towards Jerusalem, you would be singing. So it's the same reason why I couldn't finish the movie Frozen. Too much singing. So the highway robbers might have been a bit intimidated by the numbers and the singing. So after much walking and singing, they arrive in Jerusalem. And this is a busy time in Jerusalem. There was probably 200,000 people who had flocked into Jerusalem for this festival, and probably about 100,000 sheep. There was a lot of butchering that had to be done at this particular festival. 
Now, there are a couple of options. You could stay for the full week. Some Jews decided to do that. Or you had a kind of get-out clause at the two-day mark. Now, it doesn't, specif- uh, <clears throat> it doesn't specify in our text today how long uh, Mary and Joseph stayed for, but we tend to think they were probably there just for the two days. Otherwise, uh, how would Jesus have had access to these teachers if the festival had ended? So it was probably that they had left at the two-day mark. And it says that when they left, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, in his mind, he wasn't lost. What Luke is telling us here is that Jesus stayed behind intentionally. And you can imagine, imagine you're the parent of of Jesus. You're Mary and Joseph. You're bringing up a sinless boy. You'd probably suppose that he accompanied you along the journey, wouldn't you? I mean, imagine saying, Jesus, we're leaving. You're probably not going to check to see if he's going to obey you. You assume he's probably going to come with. This is the sinless boy, is it not? I mean, it's not like Jesus ever went through the terrible twos. There was no wooden spoon in this household. If they said they're leaving, I imagine Jesus is going to come along with them. So yeah, I I completely understand that they presume that Jesus is among the company. There was a very large group of them traveling, so it seems like a fair mistake to make. And so as they're headed back, they start asking questions. Where's where's Jesus gone? I thought he was with you. I, I thought he might have been with one of our relatives. And they soon discover that he's not among the company. And imagine how Mary's feeling at that moment. Like she's lost her son in the desert and she knows that her son is the Messiah. Like that's... You had one job, Mary. (laughs) Don't lose the Messiah. And she's lost him. So they head back to Jerusalem. And um, this is how we find Jesus. It says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, I think for me, if I had gone missing from my folks for three days, this event would have played out a little bit differently for me. Like my backside would have been swiftly acquainted with the wooden spoon if I had been missing for three days. But here we find Jesus in the temple. And what's he doing? He's, he's putting on a theology clinic. The, these teachers are going, we, we don't have a category for what you're doing right now. You, you're displaying wisdom and insight that we've never really seen before. This is... This is raw talent. And yet at the same time, what what Jesus is doing here, he's not just demonstrating this is a byproduct of his divine nature. The text says that Jesus was asking questions. You know, Jesus had things to learn the same way you and I have things to learn. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. I, I, I threw a big theological term out the other week, the hypostatic union of Christ. That is to say that Jesus is one person, yet he plays host to two distinct natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. And it's interesting when it comes to how Jesus learns and what he knows, you see these two natures play out in a really curious way. Like in, in one sense, you can look at the sort of things he said when he was on the Mount of Olives in uh, Mark 13. Jesus had just prophesied all these events that were going to take place in the future. And then he says, but concerning the day or hour... The Son of Man doesn't know when these things will happen, but only the Father. So, well, hang on a second, aren't you, aren't you God incarnate? Well, yeah, but he has a human nature. There were things that Jesus, through the lens of his human nature, he didn't know them. But then with respect to his divine nature, he knew everything. Look what it says in uh, John 2. 
It says, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So it begs the question, when we see this 12-year-old boy putting on a theology clinic here, which nature is he operating out of here in Luke 2? Well, I'd argue that it's his human nature. But it's, it's a human nature that's not tainted by sin. This, this isn't just raw theological recital to Jesus. He is the sinless one, and he's immersed in the Scriptures in such a way that he's participating in perfect union with the Father. He's studying the Old Testament Scriptures the way no one ever had, and these doctors of the Scriptures are kind of going, we, we don't have a category for this, because they themselves have never been able to study it the way he could. And that's where we can see across Jesus' life, it says that he increased in wisdom. He continued to learn. As one theologian put it, F.W. Danker, he said, one day his questions will pierce to the very core of the religious establishment and he will give answers to his own questions. So these teachers are amazed at what this young man is doing. But then the amazement gets even more shocking when you see that that same amazement is on his very mother's face. Look, Look at how her mother, his mother, finds him. I mean, she's amazed with a slightly negative overtone. She's kind of going, hey, mate, where you been? We've been looking for you for three days. But at the same time, she's listening to his answers, listening to his questions and going, I, I didn't teach him that. How, how's, he, how's he doing this? Now, why would Mary be confused at this, at this moment? Well, let, let's take a look back to some of the things we've looked at over the past couple of weeks. Do you remember when Gabriel first spoke to Mary that she would bear a son? Gabriel said to Mary, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, Mary is anticipating that her boy is going to grow up to be a king. She thinks that Jesus' mission is tied up with a political agenda, right? So she's thinking, right, if I want to prepare my son for his future, I've got to get him practicing a few kingly duties. I've got to get him practicing sitting on a throne. I've got to get him practicing having servants attend to him. I've got to, you know what, let's get him some combat training. That way he can take up arms and conquer the Romans. Let's, let's get him ready to do kingly things. That's what Mary anticipates that his mission includes. But what's... What's Jesus doing? Well, he's at Bible college. He's hanging out in the temple studying the scriptures. And, and Joseph and Mary must have been baffled. They'd be going, hang on, we've, haven't we done the religious bit? You know, we've, we've brought you down according to custom. We've, we've been at the temple these last couple of days. I mean, Jesus, in your father's house, we've been at your father's house for the last two days. Why do you feel like you need more? Surely we need to be preparing you for kingly duties, not these temple-type duties. Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, They believed him to be the Messiah that should have the throne of his father David, but they thought that that should rather bring him to the royal palace than to the temple. They understood not his prophetical office, and he was to do much of work in that. And it's interesting, as you read the gospel accounts, you know, even through Luke's gospel that we're in, the disciples had the same problem that Mary had that they didn't quite understand who he was. I mean, if you look at um, the account in Luke 18, this is what um, Luke tells us in Luke 18, 31 to 34. 
It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will deliver over to them, <clears throat> over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now that seems like a pretty easy explanation. Like what's, what's not obvious about that? Then look how it finishes. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. You see, the problem that both the disciples and Mary had is they couldn't come to grips with the nature of Jesus' mission because they were caught up with their own false expectations about who Jesus was. But this boy Jesus knows that the reason he entered history was to teach. He, he came in the Old Testament sense of the word to be a prophet. He came to herald the oracles of God. So in essence, what Jesus is saying here is, Mother, Father, where else would I be? Surely I need to be in my Father's house. Now, when he says that, there is, there is no overtone of, of disrespect here. This is not Jesus you know, making his first sins, the sin. There's no disobedience echoed here. He's just, he's just politely reminding his parents, my ultimate allegiance and my mission here on earth is tied up and bound up with my Father and the things that he has said. So Mary's confused about his mission, we've just seen that, but she's even confused about his very identity. You see, Jesus says something here that no one had ever said before. It says there in the text, I must be in my Father's house. See, there's many times in the Bible where people would refer to God as Father. Like the, the fatherhood of God had been established in the Old Testament. There's no questioning that. For example, uh, Isaiah 63:16 says this. He says, For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from old is your name. You see, calling God Father was not new, but it was more of a corporate identity. You would say God is our Father. He's the, the Father of Israel. He's the Father of the covenant people. But to, to personalize it and say, my Father, to say, this is a completely new idea. So Mary is she's shocked at the fact that he's been miss, missing for three days. She's shocked at the fact that he's studying in the temple. That's not what messiahs do. And he, she's shocked at the fact that he is claiming a kind of unique sonship to the Father that no one has ever testified to before. She's pretty baffled. If you were to write a book about this, you'd call it the memoirs of a confused mother. This is bizarre times for Mary. I love this little extract that um, Philip Riken had in his commentary. I'd like to read it for you. It says, What the boy Jesus said was monumental in what it revealed about his true identity as the Son of God and revolutionary and its implications for our own relationship to God as our Father. Jesus referred to God as my Father. This intimate expression was totally new. No one had ever said anything like it before. To be sure, the fatherhood of God is present in the Old Testament. There are at least a dozen places where Scripture refers to God as Father. However, those who are speaking always refer to themselves in the plural. That is, people spoke of God as our Father, but no one ever called Him my father. God's paternity was more, more a general concept than a personal relationship. Even men like Moses and David, who enjoyed special intimacy with God, never dared to claim that he was their father. But Jesus said it as if it was the most natural thing in the world. 
If the temple was God's house, then it was his father's house, because he knew that God was his father. Jesus knew that he was the son of God. He is expressing his unique sonship. This is the entire point of this passage. We're seeing Jesus express something that no one's ever expressed before. This is the one who entered history, the one who has a unique relationship to the father. He is no ordinary boy. My mum used to say to me often, uh, Jaden, sometimes mum knows best, <laughs> right? And that's true. I'm sure that's true of all the mothers in this room, but gently put in Mary's case, there's a sense in which she had no idea here. <laughs> M- mum didn't know best right now. <laughs> you see, as, as we read the rest of the New Testament, it's clear to us that Jesus truly is the second person of the Trinity. But at this point in the story, Mary didn't know that. It would take her decades to figure out who he really was and what he was here for. And that was actually really, really hard for her. She, she labored a bit as she watched Jesus' life unfold. In fact, something we read last week in Luke 2, 34 to 35 says this. It says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And right there in the middle in brackets, look what it says about Mary. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. You see, Jesus' ministry was going to cause significant grief to Mary. It was going to be a hard 33-odd years. You know, there were times when she would go to visit her son just to go see how he was doing, and, and Jesus would respond and say things like this, Who is my mother? Who is my brothers? For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Yeah, that's, that's a curious greeting to receive from your son. Now, I'm sure her grief would have culminated at the cross as she watches her innocent son be executed at the hands of the Romans. Like, I mean, that would be the sword piercing her soul, absolutely. But I think it starts right here in Luke chapter 2. At age 12, Jesus' words are piercing her soul. She doesn't have a category for her own son. That's why you see it in these opening chapters. It says that Mary, when she experiences episodes like this, it says she treasured up all these things in her heart, pondering them. Mary's trying to figure out who exactly this guy is. So the main point for us is to see that Jesus is no ordinary boy. So what do we do with that? Well, the first thing we can take from it is to say, Jesus, what he does here is for our example. We, um, we caught up as a, a staff briefly this week, the staff who were in town, on Thursday, and we were just um, doing a bit of devotion time together, and we spoke about this idea that there's a difference between busy and being fruitful. That those aren't the same things. And what's fascinating about the life of Jesus, we see it here in Luke 2, but we see it throughout his entire life, is that everything he did was fruitful. Everything he did had ministry, kingdom intentionality. And he, it was the case because everything he did was in complete, perfect submission to his Father's will. I mean... Look at the way Jesus speaks about some of his activities. He's like, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. My food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus spent his whole life oriented to the will of the Father, and that's why his life was so fruitful. Do you hear the kind of tone of priority that comes through in Jesus' words. He doesn't just do things. Everything is intended. And so by way of application, we have to ask the question this morning, how are we doing? What's, um, what's our food? Like, could it be said 
of your life, that it's a life characterized by someone who is in their father's house, about their father's business. Could that be said of you and me? Like what, what purpose were you sent for? And are there any false expectations concerning your mission this side of eternity? You see, Mary had a few. And maybe in our own lives as we follow Jesus, with him as our example, maybe we've got the same thing happening. Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, Herein he hath left us an example, for it becomes the children of God in conformity to Christ to attend their heavenly Father's business and to make all business give way to it. So those are some potent thoughts for us as we enter into 2020. Will we be about our Father's house? So what Jesus did was exceptional. It was for our example. But ultimately, it's for our own, our own salvation. And the band can come and join me. You see, the truth is, the reason Jesus had to come and enter history, the, the very thing we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation of Christ, the reason he had to come is because we haven't lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father. The life that Jesus demonstrates for us here is the very life that we fail to live. So Jesus had to come and live that life for us. You know, we often think of the atonement as what Jesus did for us on the cross. And yes and amen to that. That is absolutely a a picture of the atonement. Look to Jesus on the cross. But the truth is, the cross would be null and void if Jesus did not come and live this perfect life of humble submission to the Father that he did. He was the perfect sacrifice. The first Adam brought a curse. The second Adam, Jesus, brought life by his perfect obedience. In Romans 5.19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And Jesus did all that so that you and I could also look to God and say, My Father. That's what he's done for us.